Hey, thanks for listening to the Pro Sports Podcasters. We appreciate the support as always. In case you missed it, we have a newsletter coming out this August. And it's written by our resident funny man, so you know it's going to be fun and engaging. Justin, tell us more about it. Thanks, Nee. In this letter, I tell you everything you need to know about last week's episode in the rundown section, included with links from Tuesday and Friday's episode, another section of what to come, and my favorite part is the media fun stuff. In that, I tell you which movies you could watch on various streaming platforms if you liked what we had to talk about. Listen, fans, because no sport is left behind, it's important to know what's been happening with the Pro Sports Podcasters. By signing up for the weekly newsletter, we will have you front row center for every interview and analytic discussion. So do yourself a favor and sign up. Welcome all the link is in the show notes. On this Be part of the conversation no and enjoy some of the fun. I'm Once again, we thank you for listening to the Pro Sports Podcast. This is our brother from down under, me Wallace Bruce. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters. Filling you in on the latest news from the world of sports. Welcome back to the Pro Sports Podcasters. I'm your host, Neil Wallace Bruce, and today I'm joined by the one and only Kobe, Colbert Durand. How you doing? I'm good, buddy. How are things going with you? Great. Can't complain. And we have a special guest. She is back from the Tokyo Olympics. She represented the United States in the javelin throw. Two-time Olympian, Maggie Malone. Maggie, how's it going? Hi, guys. It's going great. How's it going with you? We're good. We're good. Now, Maggie, let's let's get into it. Talk us through the experience of Tokyo. It was obviously different to Rio. There were no fans. There were uh, restrictions with COVID. How was that for you? Oh man, uh, it was it was still an incredible experience, and I just have to give just a giant shout out to uh, Tokyo and and to the volunteers that worked and and put on the Olympics. I mean in the middle of a pandemic, when, when things were starting to ramp up again with COVID, I just think that they did a phenomenal job of keeping all of us safe. Uh, I think they did a phenomenal job of just keeping everything afloat because <laughs> uh, a lot of things were changing last minute or, you know, there's a lot of protocols that we all needed to follow that could have changed a, a second too. And I just think that they did a, a great job and so thankful that we were even able to compete. Honestly, I have said this time and time again, I would rather have competed with no fans than not competed at all. So I, I'm definitely thankful that we were able to be there, be safe. Obviously, there are a couple of COVID cases, but overall, just a great experience, incredible track and field stadium. I loved it. I, it. I hope that we can go back and maybe do like a world championship there at some point or a major diamond league because it is a beautiful stadium uh, and I definitely want to go back for sure. Yeah, and it's a beautiful city. It's, it's a shame that you weren't able to leave the village. I know. Yeah. No, we were able to drive back and forth through uh, the, so the U.S. had a, a high performance center, uh, which was an off village um, site for U.S. athletes. So regardless if you were track or swimming or gymnastics or soccer, we had that center for us that served meals for us. And it had all these different facilities. Really thankful that we had that offsite. So I uh, got to see the city just driving from the village to uh, the high performance center every day. You're correct on that. It is beautiful. I said 
the balance between the like innovative architecture and city that they have with the environment and the just the protection of the environment was, was just beautiful to see because you would see all these buildings that are like massive buildings but then you would also see like uh, all these trees that would be like going up to like the sixth floor like it was just really cool how they were able to preserve the environment but also have this incredible city around it for sure and were there many people out on the streets when you were shuttling between the village and the stadium or the village and the high performance center not as many as i thought there would be to be honest uh, but definitely did get to see people uh, a lot of bikers uh, a lot of people bike which is which is awesome and then there's one area that there was a lot of people that would travel through I, i'm not exactly sure where it, or what it's called but yeah there weren't as many people as i thought but once you got closer to the Olympic Stadium, you got to see more people outside that would wave to us or um, really just cheer us on as we were driving in, which was just awesome to see and, and really cool and unifying to see. Fantastic. Now, I know you began as a heptathlete, but decided to focus on javelin because it was your strongest event. Was that the the impetus for the move from a Cornhusker to an Aggie? Uh, no. Well, I mean, it was a part of it, but that was not what drove that decision. So I, yes, I started out as a heptathlete. You know, I was a, a three sport slash four sport athlete in high school all growing up, basketball, volleyball, softball, track and field. But I was mainly a jumper in high school and they were going to take a chance on me at Nebraska as a heptathlete because my mom was a heptathlete. But the reason I left was because my family who, you know, was in Nebraska, they actually moved at the end of my freshman year in college, they moved to College Station, Texas. My dad offered a job there for uh, to coach football and to be an, a coordinator at Bryan uh, ISD. And so that's what sparked the first move was that they moved there. And then the same week, so uh, anybody who knows me knows I I'm a Christian and I believe that God was definitely leading me in this area. But my, uh, my coach at Nebraska actually took a job at Texas A&M the same week that my family moved, uh, which was pretty wild. And for people who don't know, College Station, Texas is where Texas A&M is. And so the fact that my family moved, my coach moved, uh, it really did kind of direct me towards Texas A&M. Uh, and then I looked up who the actual javelin coach was, um, because at that point I was going to transition from the heptathlon to the javelin. And it's Juan de la Garza, aka Chico. He's like my second dad. He's incredible, but one of the most incredible uh, javelin coaches in the United States, especially in the collegiate system. You know, two-time Olympian, uh, national record holder for Mexico, had multiple national champions. And so I, you know, my family moves there. My coach that I had and, and trusted at Nebraska took a job there. And then I knew that I'd get an opportunity to work with somebody who really knew the javelin. So all of those things lining up really did force the decision to go to A&M. And I do not regret it at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a perfect confluence of events for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It's like it was, it was meant to be. <laughs> you were meant to be at uh, Texas A&M yes. for sure. Oh, I agree. I, I think I was meant to be an Aggie. I mean, my name has it in it. So <laughs> from birth, I think I was I was supposed to be an Aggie. Maggie the Aggie. Now, you mentioned from birth. Maggie so the Aggie. Let's just touch on that for a second, because if we're not mistaken, when you were a child, you had a serious leg injury, right? Yeah. 
you guys did your research well well done <laughs> i saw you operating around here <laughs> so i know uh, you know nobody ever asks me about that yeah i um so when i was in kindergarten um i was at uh my babysitters at the time and her son looped along uh who still says that he takes credit for me being tough <laughs> he and i were just playing outside and if you can picture like I don't know if you guys have kids, but those like play sets that have like the slide and kind of like that fort looking thing. And then they have um, the monkey bars. So if you could picture that, he and I were playing outside. He was on the swing. I was climbing up to that fort area. And if you can picture kind of the, the pegs or the, the slats that you would use to walk up that or climb it up. Mm. So when I was climbing, he was talking to me and I, I think I started laughing and my foot slipped in between those two pegs. And so it went through that little area and then I fell backwards. Oh. Um, and when I did that, uh, I broke my femur and I chipped my growth p plate pretty significantly. And so then, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I kind of black out from there, but I remember going to the doctor and, and I remember, you know, having conversations with my mom. Now, the first doctors that we went to, they said that I would probably never grow again because it was so significantly damaged uh, in my right leg. And so what they wanted to do was then stunt my left leg. And essentially I would be the same size as I would be as a kindergartner. And my parents, both being collegiate athletes and being successful, were like, absolutely not. <laughs> we are going to get a second opinion. Uh, and then we ended up going to a different doctor. His name is Dan Samani. He is incredible. He is still a major part of the Malone family. And we went to him and I worked with him for a really, really long time. I mean, most of my adolescence and he fixed my leg. He said, absolutely not. We are not going to stunt the left leg. And so I was in a wheelchair for about 10 weeks and then, um, and I was in a cast for all that time as well. And from that point forward, I would have like monthly check-ins with Dr. Samani um, to make sure that everything was going well and, and growing and it grew and here we are today. <laughs> so every year that I would have success in track and field in high school or whatever it was, I would always send him a note and I still send him a note because I would not be here. I would not have this opportunity without Dr. Samani. I mean, he, he literally changed the tra trajectory of my life. Yeah, that's phenomenal because, I mean, if that first doctor, if his word had stood and your family had taken that, things could have been a whole lot different. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's awesome. And sometimes I guess there's a lesson there that sometimes we shouldn't give up. Nope. And also go to the best. That's always what I say too, is if you want to be the best or if you want to accomplish something or whatever it is, you go to the best, you seek the best, you learn from the best. And Dr. Samani is the best. <laughs> and I'm thankful that we got to work with him for sure. Awesome. And just staying with the best, why do you feel it's so important to work with someone like Coach Delegaza? And it's not even just him. I mean, I'd love to shout out my team here too. Malcolm Gwilliam, who is my strength and performance coach out in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
He is the best. Uh, Cynthia uh, Monteleone is my nutritionist, who is the best. You know, Taylor Brown, who is my mental coach, who is the best. Okay, so going to answer that question, I think it's important because guess what? They're the expert in that field. You know, I don't, I haven't dedicated my livelihood to mental coaching or nutrition or, you know, javelin at the time. But I think it's extremely important that if you want to accomplish whatever goal you you have set for yourself, you have to learn from the best. You have to come open handed and allow them to speak into your life and, and help really craft your next steps. Because if I wouldn't have worked with Coach De La Garza, I call him Chico. So if I haven't wouldn't have worked with Chico, there's no way that I would be talking to you guys today. There's no way that I would have would be a two-time Olympian at this point. He is the best at javelin and at that moment was incredible in breaking down really bad habits and then building me up and, and teaching me things that I just didn't understand about javelin. And so him and then Malcolm William, who is truly the best strength and performance coach I've ever worked with. And I'm so grateful that I get to work with him because his philosophy is that every athlete should have individualized programming. And I 100% agree with that. I do not believe that there is a blanket approach to strength and conditioning that I think every athlete has individual needs that they need to address. And so the fact that I get to work with him who is dedicating so much time and energy just on me, uh, it's made a huge difference in, in this year. And he understands strength and strength and conditioning. Like he, he knows so much more than I will ever know because he loves it. He cares about it. He is an expert in that field. And so I'm just, I'm so thankful to get to work with these people. And I cannot express that. The, well, and, and my mom is the one that taught me that she's always said to me, if you want to be the best, you have to go to the best. You have to learn from them. And so that's just something that's always stuck with me. And I'm sure it was definitely a benefit having two athletic parents, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's def- and they were my coaches too. So I I always laugh. My dad was my athletic director, and he really helped me in, in softball. My mom was my track coach and my volleyball coach, and so I I definitely got to work with both of them a lot. And there were definitely some some head to head, mainly with my dad, but. You know, I'm just really thankful for for them and their guidance because I think a lot of parents who haven't been there, they have an idea of how to get their child to be successful in, in athletics. And unless you've been there, I just don't think that you have a true understanding of what it takes. And it's almost on the reverse side. I feel like a lot of parents that haven't, you know, been collegiate athletes or D1 athletes um, or had a lot of success in that area, they think that they just have to work, work, work their kid all the time. They're going to the best camps. They're getting the personal training. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're doing all these things. Um, and I think my parents took the opposite side of that. They they really focused on process and fundamentals and really nurturing that the skills that, you know, both me, my sister and my brother, who we were all collegiate athletes, like, you know, I think that they understood what it took and they were able to nurture that and, and, and really groom that in us versus pushing us all the time and, and punishing us if we didn't perform well or anything to that nature like that. That was just not my parents at all. And I'm really thankful for the way that they did it. Awesome. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at pro.sports.podcasters for the most current sports news. Now back to the show.
I'm going to stick with the best theme for a little while here. Uh, (laughs) Yes. In 2016, you were by far the best in America when it came to Miss Javelin. And I would say as a lay person looking from the outside, looking in, I would say that probably your Olympic performance was a disappointment to you or was it? Yeah, no, absolutely it was. But I, you know, I have a lot of compassion for that version of myself. And it took a long time to get there. A lot of just self-discovery and therapy and and counseling in those areas. And it was a disappointment, but also, you know, that was my first international competition ever. That was my first team that I've ever made. You know, a lot of these athletes, they grew up in, in the sport and they made junior worlds or junior Olympic stuff or Pan Ams or whatever it is or seniors. And so they had made a lot of these teams and they knew what it was like. I had no idea. I had no idea what uh, the competition was going to look like. It's very different than the United States system of how we run track meets. Okay. I also did not have my coach there. And I also didn't have any family there because my mom had gotten sick right before the Olympics. So I was, I was by myself and I had no idea what it was going to be like. And so yes, disappointed with my performance there. And it took a long time for me to kind of come to terms with that. But now I, I think I'm at a place where I have a lot of compassion because you don't know what you don't know. And that's kind of where I was as a 21, 22 year old athlete who had only been throwing javelin about three years. So you've got to love the bounce back performance you had in Tokyo, especially the way you came out of the gate so strong. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's bittersweet. My goal guys was that I was going to make that final. I had had it in my head that it was not going to be like 2016. And that was something I was really trying to work through. I wanted to prove to myself that I could be an international thrower because the two experiences that I had had or three really didn't go well. I didn't throw well. And so I came into that prelim with kind of this like lion focus where I was like, I am going to make this final. I am an international thrower and I I can do this. So yeah, I'm really happy being able to throw 63 meters first throw. And then the final obviously didn't throw as well. My warmups were were awesome. I felt fantastic. I had two throws, 65, 66 meters. And then again, you don't know what you don't know. I wasn't ready for the 30 minutes that from my last prelim throw to my, my first competition throw, there was about 30 minutes in between. I didn't know how much time was going to be in between throws and, and the delays. And, and then also, you know, people just really competing well. Um, I didn't Mm. expect that. And I think I put too much emphasis in that and too much thought. And I was almost hyper aware of where I was versus all year I had been focusing on my cues, what I need to do, how to stay centered and present. Um, and I think I've just let my mind get away from me. And, and then I started trying too hard and you guys probably know in javelin, the the second you start trying hard, the second it's going to not go so well. (laughs) So I took a lot away from that experience and I learned a lot. And even looking back, I have some ideas of how I'm going to approach hopefully the next final, given the opportunity again. So I definitely, it's a bittersweet moment, but I know that there's more and I'm, I'm, you know, God willing that there's more to come in this sport. Yeah. The 30 minutes on the 
grandest stage has got to feel like three hours when it comes right down to it. But obviously, oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, obviously <laughs> you've learned something Olympics to Olympics and your goal is 2024 then. Absolutely. And, and then, and also, you know, 2022 and 2023, we got two world championships in between there. And I just hope that I can continue to build on my experience now and continue on this trajectory and, and, Again, just give all the glory to God along the way and use this as a platform, not only to, you know, I want to accomplish some things, but it's not, I've said this all year, it's not about me. I want it to be about Christ. And um, and, and I don't know if you guys are believers or not, but that's really been my mission and, and my my passion throughout this year. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's a great story. And I'm sure we'll see you again at the two world championships that you mentioned and also at Paris in 2024. Yeah, something I wanted to touch on is Javelin isn't the most followed event. It isn't the most marquee event. And sometimes some of these sort of secondary events as they're seen, it's difficult to get the kind of funding required to really pursue these these endeavors 100% of the time. So where does the funding come from for you to focus on Javelin all the time? Yeah, so I have a full-time job. I work at a leadership development company called Wild Spark, and I absolutely love it. Uh, they've been incredibly supportive of my journey in track and field and, and reaching my goals. I, I know that they are have been with me and have been praying for me and supporting me. If you go on my Instagram, you'll see them highlighted, different videos of, of them kind of having cheer squads for me. But that's been the main source of my funding. And then this year, I was really fortunate to to receive a grant from the U.S., excuse me, USATF. Sorry, I'm getting an email right now. (laughs) Um, My phone is like blowing up. I'm sorry. Um, But yeah, I was really fortunate to get from uh, USATF Foundation. So I'm really, really thankful for them to help support me and what they've been able to do. Just absolutely grateful for just their initiative to helping track and field athletes who struggle in this event and who struggle at making it because we aren't premier events. Like you said, we're not sprinters. And, and it's, I I think it's maybe easier to receive funding as a sprinter or to receive um, sponsorship as a sprinter. But for me, I I just, anytime that these grants are available to, to throwers and track and field athletes, I mean, we are just so grateful for it. And so I cannot sing the praises of the USATF Foundation enough. Yeah, that's huge, right? Because essentially you're forced to live two lives and full time on both lives. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. Unlike a sprinter who's 100% of the time focused on shaving a fraction of a second, you have a second yeah. life that you actually got to live on top of preparing for yeah. top level events. So any sort of funding from the private sector or, or government sector, or whatever, yeah. is huge if you want to continue supporting these type of sports in the Olympics and, you know, seeing your athletes on podiums or at least represented in events like this. Yeah. No, you're a hundred percent correct. And I, I appreciate you saying that too. And I mean, I just think about this a lot of times. A lot of us do have to work full-time jobs or part-time jobs. And I have friends who work at Chipotle or, you know, at schools or whatever it is. And think about this. If we didn't have to work full-time jobs and could dedicate the same amount of training to our sport as a sprinter could, 
do you think that we would be on podiums like they are? Do you think that we would be more dominant in those events as they are? 100%. When I came home from the Olympics, I came back to a full-time job that I had to start, you know, the day after I recovered. I came back and had to answer emails and do requests for clients and calls with clients. And for me, for people, for my schedule, I've woken up at 6 a.m. every single day. I go lift from at, at 6.30 in the morning so that I can get to work on time. And then after work, I go into a technical session for about two hours or three hours. So if I was able to do you know, my training in the morning, not at 6 a.m., I think that my performance could be even better. <laughs> For sure. I mean, there's a, a certain amount of, amount of time in the morning that requires your body to kind of charge. And you're you're looking at 13-hour days with a schedule like that. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. But but it's but I'm like I, I look at that and I'm like, yeah, I would love, you know, to live as a sprinter would and and not have to worry about money and not have to worry about Um, funding or getting over to Europe. I would love to not have to worry about that, but I do. And I am thankful, you know, for USATF Foundation and being able to to provide some big support like that, because we're not getting the major contracts that the sprinters are a lot of the times, you know, unless you're Ryan Krauser, maybe. (laughs) So, (laughs) but I would love to, yeah, I would love to be able to just train and and maybe work a little, not even work. I would love to be able to serve my time, whether that's in my church or through foster care ministry or whatever it is. I'd love to be able to do that and compete and not have to worry about where my next rent check is coming from. Right. That's the goal. That's that's where it needs to be, yeah. really. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point because I think sometimes we as fans and viewers, we forget that, that it's not just the physical journey also the spiritual journey to get to the Olympics is for athletes like yourself, it's that being able to get there, literally, that's mm-hmm. a challenge in itself. And like you said, unless you're running 100 meters or 200 meters, those marquee events, it can be quite a challenge. Shout out to the USATF. Yeah, big shout out. Cannot say that enough. The Steven Schwartzman, I, I, absolutely. Like I can't sing their praise in, praises enough because I want to be on a podium and I truly believe that I can be on a podium. I really do. And I want to be able to dedicate the amount of time needed for training and recovery. Recovery is huge. And I want to be able to to dedicate the time needed in both areas to get there. And if I'm able to do that without having to worry about the stresses of keeping my job or keeping clients happy or keeping the company moving forward, I think that it's just going to help with my focus in these next three years because these next three years are pivotal. These are huge opportunities. Uh, and, and I want to give it everything I have and, and just really, you know, dedicate the time needed to be successful in it and continue to just glorify God through that. Yeah. And that's an interesting point because usually it's a four-year cycle, but because the games are pushed back, it's now a three-year cycle to the next games. Do you feel like there's does that make a difference for yourself or is it going to be the same intensity as before? It does mentally. (laughs) It definitely helps mentally being like, Oh, it's only three years. It's not four. And there's two world championships in between. So that's, that's, what's great about it is that we have 
three huge opportunities to compete at a really high level to make teams to compete internationally. And then obviously, you know, Eugene, Oregon is where the next year's Olympic or excuse me, uh, world championships will be. But, you know, these are these are great opportunities for us to sharpen and uh, and really prepare for the Olympics. It's going to be it's going to be a really fun next three years. Any sponsors that are listening should really factor that in. It's only three years that's required as opposed to four. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's, that's amen, something. amen. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> when it comes to supporting the athletes, for me, it's a, it's a win-win situation. I think everyone wins all the way down to the fans because as a fan of a sport, as a fan of Olympic events, I'm watching because I want to see records get broken. That's what yeah. I want to see, right? I, I want to see the amazing yeah. happen. It's why we watch professional sports because you get yeah. to see the absolute best. So if yeah. you treat Olympic athletes like professional athletes, then the Olympics itself benefits because you're going to see the phenomenal happen. And that's just yeah. where it needs to be. And the stories. I think a lot of people also watch the Olympics. Yes, for the amazing comp like you know, accomplishments that they have, but the stories, I mean, the story of Caleb Dressel and his mental health struggle and, and seeing him win an Olympic gold medal and set an Olympic record. I mean, you, you're rooting for Caleb Dressel, not just because he is an athlete that's going to break a record, but because of the struggle that he went through to get there. That's right. And I think that that is what needs to be highlighted more in track and field as well. And, and the sponsors should highlight and they should tell these stories of, of, you know, men and women who have gone through a lot of adversity to get to where they are. And, and those stories of just triumph, I think that is what people relate to. And they really, you know, they, they root for that's the connection that I think the Olympics brings to everybody around the world is, are these stories and whether it's mental health or physical struggle or family or work or whatever it is, somebody on this planet can relate to that and they can see themselves in that person. And I think that's what allows us to root for them and to absolutely just feel so connected to that person. Well said. Yeah, 100%, especially in these times of pandemic with so much happening around the world, people are looking for that inspiration. So to see it tangible yeah. on the screen like that, that definitely is a way of encouragement. Now, staying in that vein, you were competing for the U.S. in 2021 in Javelin. I have no doubt that it would have been a young child in the States watching who's probably inspired to take up Javelin now. What are some words of advice you pass on to someone who wants to get into track and field and throw the Javelin? <laughs> Be patient. <laughs> that would be um, my number one piece of advice. Javelin can be a very frustrating event because the moment that you think you got it, you you're like your eyes open and you learn something else and you're like, oh my gosh, everything that I ever thought I learned or knew about this sport is is trash. You know, now I've learned something completely different. So be patient. It is not a rocket ship trajectory. There's going to be a lot of peaks and valleys along the way. Because javelin is a is a tedious event, and it takes a lot of work and dedication. And I'd also say, you know, there's some great people to follow and learn from 
uh, Kara Winger, uh, you know, she's she's still my role model and uh, and also teammate and, and captain uh, in the Olympics. And so she posts a lot of good information and a lot of warm up and rehab stuff on her Instagram. And um, I, I'm trying to more. <laughs> Uh, I, I definitely can get better, but she would be great. I think Thomas Roller has great videos if you're just starting in the javelin as well. Uh, and then also camps. So I, I'm planning on putting up, doing some camps this year and uh, would love to just help anybody who is who is interested in javelin and wants some guidance in that. They can always DM me on Instagram as well. Okay, there we go. And you can find Maggie on Instagram at Maggie the Aggie. And she's also on Twitter at Maggie Malone 93. Yeah, I, I will say that I do not use Twitter as much. So <laughs> I'm pretty, uh, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm like a ghost on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I would be too if I was on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And spoiler alert, the Javelin plays a very important role in the new Suicide Squad movie. I know. I know it does. <laughs> At Marvel, come at me. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> there we go. A new character coming up. <laughs> yep, would love it. I'll, I'll, I'll teach him a thing or two about it. <laughs> right on. <laughs> yeah. well, we appreciate your time today, Maggie. 